Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I think the best marketing for your game is simply having people know who you are well enough that when it's like, all right, hey, there's a new Tyler Crumrine game. Like, people are like, you know, they like Tyler Crumrine. And yeah, it really is. It's, you know, I don't think be sleazy about it, but just like, be a person. My name is Jeremy Gage, and welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast. This is an educational show involving all things tabletop role-playing industry. Listen alongside me as we hear from creators, entrepreneurs, and supporters about their personal best practices, principles, and philosophies. I encourage anyone from the budding game designer to a seasoned publisher and everyone in between to sit down with us and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome uh, to today's episode of Draw Your Dice, this being the third one. I might legitimately count all the way to 52 by the end of the year, just so people know. Today... I am joined with a really multi-hatted individual who has created a great game in the form of Beak, Feather, and Bone. He is also the editor over at Plays Inverse. I would like to welcome Tyler Crumrine. Hello. Hello. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for flaunting covid guidelines and bringing in this huge studio audience yeah to to applaud for for me and my gaming knowledge to all 200 of you not wearing masks literally four feet from us we appreciate your bravery no we're joking no i've always said you're you're the jimmy fallon of rpg podcasts so oh even three episodes in (laughs) the the people the people have chosen (laughs) Oh shoot! I don't know about being compared to Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, I'll take yeah, it. Yeah, I, I realized it. after saying that. It was yeah. like, all right, well, <laughs> what a goofball he is. Well, Tyler, before we sort of get into the game design, the business, the meat of the podcast, why don't you introduce the introduce yourself as the world as you present yourself to the world for the people at home? 
Yeah, I'm Tyler Crumrine, he, him, and I am, yeah, like Jeremy said, I, I wear a lot of hats. My career thus far, for the last decade or so, has been in theater and publishing. I, I work as a dramaturg, which is the most pretentious role in theater. <laughs> Essentially, what a dramaturg is, is someone who helps to develop new plays or does historical research on existing plays. So sometimes I'm the one explaining like the Shakespeare dick jokes and program notes. Sometimes I am the one who is like in the editor's role for a play the same way that like an editor would help to hone a novel that's in progress. And then Plays in Verse is my publishing company for experimental theater where I get to have my cake and eat it too. Uh, there are a lot of plays that are going up on stages that I will, you know, I'll be in the rehearsal room and work on. But there are even more plays that don't get the same kind of uh, wide amount of performances because they are a little too niche or they're a little too experimental. And a lot of times those plays don't get published either. So what I do is I run a small press that takes those like very interesting but not very commercial plays and publishes them the way you would a book of poetry. So all this to say that on top of just being a games hobbyist for a long time and someone who's very interested in printed word and kind of performance literature in general, which I think RPGs fall into as well as theater, I have been very lucky to get involved with game design, to get involved with the Brain Trust RPG design community, and I launched a Kickstarter for the game that I was most confident in, uh, Beak, Feather, and Bone, for Zine Quest in 2020. It did very well, and kind of since then, especially after theaters shut down for the pandemic, I've really been leaning into game design as a way that I can create the same kind of, you know emergent storytelling experiences, performance storytelling, and also create the kind of like community, which is why I like theater, but within microcosms. So by releasing these RPGs that can be played digitally through, you know, Discord or games that you can play within like a two or three person bubble, I feel like even though the world is terrifying and different right now. I feel like I'm still kind of being able to flex the muscles that I've built over the years to create the kind of art that, you know, I want to see and that I believe in. That's amazing. Truly. What an, what an introduction for sure. And it's interesting that you touch on sort of the digital components of, of, moving into that sort of uh, framework for creating games because we had Spencer and Adam on here, Adam Bell and Spencer Campbell on previous episodes already. And both of them alluded to thinking like game designers should be thinking about, you know, we don't have access to the table anymore in groups of five or six or seven or whatever have you. So we really have to start thinking about the virtual tabletop and discord and all these other tools that are out there. Miro, which I just learned about like two days ago. Um, to facilitate playing games now, sort of like combining the tabletop and almost video game space, sort of. Yeah, I think that's that's awesome. Tyler, for the folks at home, I always like to 
you've already displayed very much that you are far more than just a game designer, but what was sort of your first maybe game that kind of wanted you to push into game design that really sparked something within you and said, I could hack this or this is what I want to make. And what was sort of that, that starting muse moment for you? Yeah, I, so I grew up in uh, a pretty conservative Christian household and very much during like the period when there was a bit of another kind of satanic panic going on, not the original one with Dungeons and Dragons, but with like the popularity of Harry Potter, there was kind of a renewed like skepticism, especially of Christian parents towards anything with like magic in it. I remember my friends were super into the Magic the Gathering card game and the way that I could justify playing with them to my parents was by playing a a Plains Angel deck so I could be like, oh, I'm the good guys. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. yes, it is all magic and there are demons in this game, but like I'm running an angel's deck, which was not very good, but at least I was able to play with them. And so I really came to RPGs, you know, as an adult, post-theater education, as a theater professional. I had a number of friends who were performers, were comedians, who had been interested in D&D. And so I was just like, hey, I'll buy the books, like I'll GM, I'll run stuff for you. And so I started out just playing Dungeons and Dragons, really GMing way more than I ever played anything. And I really loved it, but I did not enjoy the prep Mm-hmm. at all. And so the first kind of like game design that I did was almost out of like I don't know if it's very fair to myself to call it laziness, but like I hated doing all this writing and pre-prep work and like coming up with all these ideas for branching paths and stuff when I would much rather just like at the start of the session sit down with my players and be like, hey, let's do this little exercise to like brainstorm directions we would be interested in going in and et cetera. And so that kind of start of like making these like little mini games for the campaigns that I was running and then later starting to play more indie games like Fiasco and The Quiet Year and things like that, that ultimately bled into now my design process where many of the games I make are still very much like, how can I gamify like the boring parts of, you know, running an RPG? You know, how can Mm -hmm. we redistribute the creative energy so that it's everyone kind of creating stuff together as opposed to, you know, one person doing like the whale's share of the labor? Mm -hmm. No, I love that because that so... I think we rode a very similar train in our in our approach or being exposed to tabletop games. I played maybe twice as a player and everyone's schedules were all wonky. So it was really hard to get people back together to get the GM to like prep things to be ready. And we were playing like maybe once a month, once every two months. And I was like, I need more. This just feels good to me for some reason. And so... I donned the mantle. I've never not been a GM since putting on the mantle. And I agree with you, especially when D&D is sort of the first game you create or touch base on, because as the GM, the game kind of gives you this loose poetic of 
telling you you have to like write a novel for your players essentially and all that mm-hmm. prep is is like bonkers for someone to first start to feel good about their first sort of campaign i mean you can definitely have the gonzo fun of someone getting stuck in the gelatinous cube and you roll a, a one on the skill check and you will be cushioning yourself into exist into unexistence but <laughs> no i i totally love that your want for game design was to make the pieces of essentially the the gm portion of traditional games i guess traditional constituting things like before the 2000s maybe i don't know when that i'm not a scholar of the of the tabletop game someone else will correct me in the comments 10 years from now and hit me with it but um yeah, fine. I, that's why I love games like Heart the City Beneath, which just came out as of the date of this podcast. It sort of has like the calling system and says, hey, each player picks two story beats. You focus on those two story beats. You don't. Neither of you have to be surprised about what the other is expecting from this game. And I think that sort of stuff is cool. And how you created Beak, Feather, and Bone to sort of facilitate. I mean, what a great transition we have here. So yeah, getting into... Like real quick before we move on from GM stuff, like yeah. first to speak on your your point that Dungeons and Dragons ex- like creates the expectation of someone writing like a world bible mm-hmm. uh, in order to play the game. Mm-hmm. You know, so much of that is how they continue to monetize the game. Like, you know, the reason why they are able to sell like the Curse of Strahd over and over and over again is because they perpetuating that myth of the GM needing to do like all of this work and labor and writing, you know, someone looking at that and being intimidated by that is the selling point Mm -hmm. of a setting book that they might buy of, you know, not having to do that insurmountable about a work. And then another thing is that like GMs should be treated more like players than they are, you know, Like, they aren't just the referee. The fact of the matter is that, like, there should be fun things for GMs to do. There should be choices for GMs to make. There should be opportunities for GMs to be surprised by creativity. You know, uh, so many games just see them as, like, a part of the machinery when really they should be treated more like, you know, like almost a distinct class within Mm -hmm. like the apocalypse world framework Mm -hmm. of you know someone who is making moves and things like that which is part of why i kind of like the the direction that game design has been going in of like giving gms more defined like tasks and responsibilities Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. spreading those out but also making sure like that the things that you say that a GM has to do are actually fun things to do. Yeah. Like, I'm not a big fan of games that are like, hey, the GM never rolls, because I'm like, well, rolling dice is fun. Yeah, no, I 6,000% agree with legitimately every single word that just came out of your mouth, for sure. Not that I haven't agreed with everything you've said so far, but no, certainly, you know, D&D is sort of like, now that I've played games like, Band of Blades, Blades in the Dark, like Band of Blades does a great job of distributing like the old GM responsibilities to other players. Someone's writing eulogies about 
NPCs that die. Someone's picking the missions that people go on. Other people are managing lots of characters. You know, like we just talked about Hearts and your game with the with sort of the map making role playing game. There's just I, I agree with you. I think the movement forward of creating GM as player instead of GM as word god almost. Yeah, or, yeah, sort of like storyteller, omnipotent facilitator. Yeah. That just says, okay, this is a fireplace and there are fire enemies and you have to save the fire princess. Like, And I never thought about it before, about that sort of model of creating the expectation of the novel writing for D&D and then selling novels to the GMs, yeah. right? Like, okay, if you're scared to do it, we have 12 books here that all have pre yeah. that you're still going to have to do heavy load on, right? Like you're still going to have to do all that extra novel work on top of getting curse of straw like you have to figure out how all that interconnects and what your players want and there's just so many other facets yeah i i think that i think you really hit the nail on the head and i'd never really thought about thought about it like that before so yeah let's let's talk about beak beak feather and birds bone here. yeah let's talk about birds the <laughs> let's raven talk birds book. where do they get off their <laughs> hollow bones <laughs> I think they're so cool flying around in the sky. Too close to the sun. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk Beak, Feather, and Bone. Yeah, absolutely. So I know we talked about this a little bit off air, but you were really surprised by how well this did on Kickstarter. So I think before we get into the meat of the design, I think I'd like you to, for people who are listening and learning, I'd like you to touch base just a tiny bit about sort of that Kickstarter process and how... What was it like feeling your expectations being blown out of the water when you came into this thinking like, oh, I'll just probably, you know, barely, barely get it here? Yeah, so it was really weird. It's one of those things where I had done some like casual hobbyist game design type stuff, participated in some game jams and things like that, but really wasn't sharing my work a lot, in large part because of just lack of confidence, uh, lack of self-esteem type things. I did not consider myself a real game designer. And really it was kind of the the success of 2019's Zine Quest and seeing folks that I really, you know, respect and being lucky enough to work on some of those Zine Quests. I've Adam Voss of World Champ Game Co. is a good friend. He's also the co-head of the Brain Trust podcast community, etc. I've been his long time for, for a good while. Mm-hmm. And so I edited the Zine Suite that they put out for Zine Quest in 2019. Like, I kind of knew what was going into it. And it really was from the encouragement of the Brain Trust that I had this game that I had been working on. I saw so many other people kind of going to Kickstarter to raise funds, you know, to put out these zines. And when I looked at my project, I was like, well, I see this as being a 30 page booklet. I don't think it warrants being more than a zine. I'm just going to put up a small Kickstarter, aim to raise $1,000 because I've printed books before. I know how much it's going to cost to print and ship these. You know, if I raise that much, it'll be worth my time. And if I don't, then, you know, at the very least, I have a mailing list. You know, Mm -hmm. I can Mm -hmm. just put up an update after it fails that sends a ping to everyone saying like, hey, bummer, we aren't getting the print editions, but 
just put it on itch.io. If you want to pay $5 for it, you can. And the other thing that I did is, and like, I didn't tell anyone about this Kickstarter. I did not, you know, pass the hat around friends and family. I didn't have an email list that I sent out saying like, hey, and this is, by the way, for listeners, this is very dumb. Don't do this. (laughs) Uh, This was all like my own anxiety, lack of confidence, because I was so convinced that like it was just going to be a drop, you know, in the middle of a lake somewhere and get lost that I like was worried about like making a big stink about it and then nothing happening. And so I didn't really tell anyone about it other than the brain trust. I just kind of launched it and then it funded day one. And then it kept funding. And then it eventually ended at about $20,000 raised. So suddenly, this thing that had been a hobby of mine, one, I feel I felt so encouraged and justified that like other people were interested in my work. But it also like it kind of became my job, which was really great because theaters had just shut down, mm-hmm. you know, and because the funds hit in. February, I delivered the game in March, and I've been selling it on itch since then, digital and physical copies. And it's paid my rent for the entirety of 2020, which is crazy and has also just been like, I don't know, really encouraging and affirming for my design process. You know, I don't think you need to like have a Kickstarter exceed your wildest expectations to, you know, justify yourself as a game designer Mm -hmm. you know if anything i am envious of the people that you know are able to work in a vacuum and be satisfied by their work Mm -hmm. but as someone who struggles with depression as someone who struggles with imposter syndrome like i probably would still be in the headspace of like eh, you're not you know a real designer If I hadn't had this, like, gangbusters experience, which is like, no, the analytical part of my brain says I made too much money doing this to just, like, write myself off as a fluke. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so that's so good. And it's it's not like, you know, as you were sort of alluding to earlier, Beak, Feather and Bone is not your first game that you've ever, like, sort of dabbled in. I'm sure you have, like. Uh, a file or closet or notebooks full of ideas. You're like, oh, that's a good idea. Oh, maybe this. I'll try that. Yeah, it was the one that I was like, well, this is done Mm -hmm. and it's polished and it would work well as a zine. Let's see what happens. I'm really glad that I did. Yeah, you got in front of people and just just took off. And I think, you know, what a sort of a subtle important lesson there is that in order for someone to get better as a designer, you have to present stuff in front of people because that, I mean, you can certainly create in a vacuum, like you said, but I think there's something about finally setting it out there for a price and saying, cool, I made this game. It's $4. Buy it. Let me know what you think and let your time be worth something and then have that feedback inform the business you're now starting because you make one yeah. game and sell it, then you can certainly make more games and sell them. Right. It's not impossible. Yeah. And even if I had failed, like now as I'm gearing up to, you know, try and go 
like even more legit with my game stuff in 2021 because theaters aren't reopening anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Like I have so many numbers where I'm able to make like educated estimates of what I think I can do. Mm -hmm. You know, like it was like, all right, if I retain, you know, 50% of the people who backed my last Kickstarter, you know, like operating under that very conservative budget, like what could I actually do here? So we'll see. But at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm just as excited by other people's projects and, you know, I'm grateful for the, the editing and the writing and stuff that I'm able to do there. So yeah, it's, yeah. It's wild. It's, it's wild out there. It's, whew, is it? It's it's the wild west all over again. It's the wild west all over again, folks. So let's let's talk beak feather and bone. Let's do it. Let's talk about the the artistic stuff. So you're gonna do a much better job than if I were to introduce your game, even though I have looked through it. Why don't you give a little brief snippet about what beak feather and bone is about for uh, the people at home? Yeah, so it is a map labeling RPG. Um, all you really need to play are the rules, which are super, super simple. The rules are really only like maybe 20 pages of the 30-page booklet because I really wanted to make it kind of like an art object as well. Austin Breed, who did the uh, illustrations for it, and Jonathan Yee, who did the map for it, both did a really fantastic, beautiful job. And so I was like, I don't want to cram these into like a corner of a page somewhere. I want to give these pieces each their own page. But you start with an empty map. So it can be any kind of unlabeled map. There are map generators online, or I provide one with the game. And you can have any number of players, one to ten really, but there's no reason why you can't have more. And you have a deck of cards, and you take turns going around in a circle and picking a building on the map and basically describing it. Each person flips a card. The card tells them some, like, value stuff and, like, what they should focus on. It's like, oh, this building serves a financial purpose. This building serves a social purpose. At the start of the game, players also pick what community they're representing. So, like, they might be representing the miners or the farmers. So, say it's the miner player's turn. They turn over a social card, which would be a heart. They would look at the map, pick out one of these squares on the map that's just an empty, unlabeled building, and they would describe that building's beak, feather, and bone. The beak is, all right, what would people say about this building? Like, what's its reputation if you were talking to a random NPC in the town? The feather is, what does it look like on the outside? You know, what is it painted a color? Is it, like, pristine? Is it falling apart? The bone is, what's it like on the inside? And that can either be a description of, like, the couches and chairs and stuff, or it can be, you know, the secret purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, and once you describe those, you go to the next player. And basically, it just goes around in this circle, and as you keep going, you continue to flesh out, like, what's actually inside these buildings on this map until you get to a certain point at the end, and then there's one more building selected as, like, the most important building in the town but with some kind of, like, lightly competitive stuff determining who gets to pick that but it really is just a way of democratizing gm prep mm -hmm. you know because you start with this empty map and rather than the gm going and being like well i don't know which of these buildings the players are going to go into 
So I'm either going to describe what's in every building or railroad them to specific buildings or not plan anything and just improvise anytime somebody walks in. Mm -hmm. Because you and your players are kind of selecting which buildings are most interesting to you and giving just a snippet of, you know, what role they play in the city, you then, if you were to take this map and play a game with it, you know, these players are that much more invested in, like, learning more about the buildings that they've heard a little bit about so far. And also, like, you have this work that hopefully has been kind of fun, session zero type thing in itself. So suddenly all this busy work of GM prep just becomes, like, a different kind of game. That's, ugh. And that is exactly, all that is exactly why I love it. What was sort of the, did it spark from that idea of that you're just trying to gamify GM responsibility or was there a different spark for this game? It was a bit of both. Really what it started as, like when I started trying to design and write my own RPG books, I very much had in my head the D&D source book style of writing. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, if I want to make a product that people are going to want to read and going to want to use, then what I need to do is I need to commission a map and I need to, which I did, like I commissioned this map from Jonathan for this mm-hmm. like city book that I was going to write. And I was going to be like, okay, and the rest of the book will be me defining every single building in this city so that a GM can just take it and use it. And the writing process was miserable. Mm-hmm. Like I hated it. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it was so much work that it really sucked all of the fun out of that process. And it also made me realize like, this isn't what I enjoy about role-playing games. Mm-hmm. Like what I enjoy about role-playing games isn't me like forcing my creativity onto others. It's like, players reacting to each other's creativity so really it was kind of already having and this was three years ago that i started that project having those materials and also like having my education in like more narrativist more rules light more gm-less type games that i was really enjoying reading and playing and writing in uh beak feather and bone was in a big way recycling like old assets that I had into something that's like, all right, I still want to play games in this city, but how can I do it with others? You know? And yeah, that was the impetus for then fleshing out the rules for, you know, all right. So how can we give the players enough that we're not just saying like, look at a map and come up with it on your own, but also not giving them so much where you might as well have just like labeled the map for them. Yeah. Yeah. What I find really interesting about this, like as you're, as you were speaking, I think this whole sort of exercise of creating an environment with people, I would be so interested to see, like actual play streams or podcast adopt this game or the style of its rules to plan out 
those stories when people visit different places. Like I think about Critical Role and how that sort of sets the precedence for the mysterious GM novelist. It's like the players will always be surprised by the drama. I'd be so much more interested to see a world that's created sort of behind the scenes with everyone's input. Like I know that the the players of, of Critical Role have some input on what different things look like or how they feel depending on the characters they make. But... I don't know, I just think that this is not only such a beautiful game, but also a very powerful toolkit for groups of people that allow for like I would I would put this in my toolbox right now and say, okay, we're gonna go to a new country or something like that. Let's whip out beak feather and bone, let's draw up a little map and talk about it. What what happens here? Let's make up the whole history of this place and literally what it says it recommends five turns per player, so yeah, you it, can easily play it in like, you know, half an hour to two hours, really, depending on how much you want to dig in. Right. Uh, and they're actually, the Asians Represent podcast just last month did a session where they were like, all right, this is the city we're going to be going to. Let's play Beak, Feather, and Bone to like flesh out some of the political intrigue of the city. And they hacked it into a game called Jade, Silk, and Steel Mm -hmm. that when I get around to doing a BFB jam or something, Mm -hmm. um, they've said they're they're hoping to release it to the public. But it was so encouraging to see them take the little bits that they had done where they're like, okay, what are the factions we already have in our game world? Like, let's switch those in for the miners and farmers. Let's take this historic map of an actual city in China. They're like, let's make our fantasy city using the rules of this game. And then also, the like, not to toot my own horn, but my favorite thing to come out of this game so far is that Friends at the Table played it for their Patreon. And Austin Walker has been like a huge inspiration to me as like a writer and thinker. And they played it and they just recently announced that like the campaign that they're going to be running through their Patreon, their little extra campaign, is going to be set in like an MMO world Mm -hmm. where the players visit the different settings that they've created in one shots. And they've said that they're going to include their Beak, Feather, and Bone Town in that. So they haven't gotten to it yet. But, like, I am just, like, eagerly listening each week to be like, holy shit, they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna visit their, their version of Bird Town in this. So, yeah. Which also was the working title for this game. Before I came up with Beak, Feather, and Bone, like, because it fit with the rules, the working name for the project was just Bird Town. I think I, think I remember that because I think you were just switching the name as I joined the brain trust. So yeah, it's probably about right. Tyler, that is so fucking cool. You have no, like, that's amazing. I am blown away by all of that. The Asian represent and the friends at the table sort of representation of your game in there and how people are seeing that, like, this is a very adoptable tool and, at this point, I would say anyone listening to this who has home games, it is $5. Go to Itch and have yourself something that is going to give you the longevity of creation you so desire. Ugh. There's, It's really interesting. Like When the game first came out, there were some super negative reviews of people like... Because 
so one of the big pictures of my Kickstarter was the game was done. Mm-hmm. I was like, I've like it's done. If you back this, like if funds in February, it delivers in March. And there's some Zine Quest projects that you know almost a year later still haven't delivered. But part of getting it to people so fast is you know people were like, oh, this is the first Zine Quest RPG that is I've actually gotten delivered. Like I plan on reviewing each of them. And so there were a bunch of reviews of it and folks who are reading it just like based on the reviews, a lot of people were saying like, Hey, I'm kind of disappointed that it's only 30 pages and like 10 of them are illustrations or people were saying like, you know, this is like really pretty, pretty thin. Like I would expect more. And I think part of that is just that people are, you know, like the D and Dification mm-hmm. of RPG products is everyone is like, hey, if you aren't like crunching, you know, double columns onto every page mm-hmm. in size nine font, like you're wasting my money. But I've also just been so encouraged by reviews that have come out since then of people being like, you know, thirty pages is short, but after playing it, I don't, I don't think it needs anything else. Yeah. <laughs> And that's that's also, like, why I'm charging $5 for it, uh-huh, you know? Uh-huh. Like, I'm not pretending that it's anything that it's not. I, yeah. I think it's I think it's well worth your 5 bucks, but it's also not, like, you know, I would charge more for it if I put the kind of work that goes into, you know, writing A Curse of Strahd. Mm-hmm. Because even just, like, paying myself per word, like, I could never charge $5 for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there really is this false expectation, especially with sort of like it for for me, I kind of rank games on like a three tier level of like the mainstream, which is where like D&D and Pathfinder and all that Warhammer sits. And there's like the semi indie, which is where like Iron Sworn and Blades in the Dark kind of sit powered by the apocalypse kind of lives there. And then indie hacks like sort of within its own sphere underneath that. And I think there's this false dichotomy of that popular and or good game facilitates 200 plus pages in some fashion. And that doesn't necessarily always warrant a good game. You know, I have no personal love for D and D and they have three books that are 300 pages plus with all sorts of, I would say to some effect, useless information in it, very fluff type stuff. And like I talked with, let's see, can't remember which guest it was either adam or spencer about how the dm it was adam how the dmg doesn't really teach you how to be a dm it just gives you sort of a couple tables and says here are some places that you can use but it doesn't specify like how do you approach different players at the table i know it has a bit about sort of the this is the actor player and these very generalized hats that players can be. But yeah, I think it's interesting to to talk about how the perception of the size of a book and not only that, but even the art of the book, like some, some games have maybe one or two pages worth of art in them. And they're literally just the rules and they're still amazingly great games, like just beautiful games. And yours certainly fit. I mean, yours has very beautiful illustrations and pieces in it as well, but at the end of the day, it's it's a pretty self self composed and simple game that, again, I think is well worth five, even beyond the five dollars for sure. So I guess the and point I, yeah, if I can interject real quickly, yeah, I absolutely, think hit me with it. Part of what I'm trying to do with BFB, and also part of what I'm really finding is kind of core to my design practice for my upcoming games, is that like. 
yes, it is kind of gamifying GM prep, Mm -hmm. but hopefully it's also kind of teaching you how to be, you know, a more open-minded and collaborative GM. Because my hope is that, like, you know, even just hearing what you were saying, like, oh, after reading this game, I want to add it to my GM toolkit, you know, because it isn't just like it isn't a self-contained game where you're like, well, you know, Thursday we're going to play Beak, Feather and Bone and Friday we're going to play, you know, cyberpunk or whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like it can be something that like, yeah, sure, you can play it on its own, but also it can just be like a tool that you use Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in your game Mm -hmm. to kind of like bridge between cities or bridge between creative pieces of thought. So even though I don't, I also don't have a section. It's like a good GM always says yes. Or, you know, like I hope in some ways that like by virtue of playing a game that invites player contribution, you know, GMs will take those lessons and be like, Oh, I don't need to be playing beak feather and bone to just ask one of my players casually like, okay, what does the inside of this room look like mm-hmm. instead of always defaulting to describing it for them? Absolutely. Absolutely. One thing I, I wanted to touch on this, it's light in the rules, but sort of why the, why the competitive element for the game? I know it's small, but why, why was that sort of put in there? Yeah. So the competitive element is of the game is that as you deal yourself these cards, you keep track of the values on them. And the person who has the highest value among their cards at the end of the game, basically their faction or their community or their player has the most influence in the city at the end of the game. And so they get kind of to claim like kind of the throne. I call it the seat of power, which is whatever is like the most influential building in the city. So say if at the end of the game, the miners had the most points, they'd be like, okay, the miners are in control of the seat of power. So that doesn't necessarily mean that there's like a miner sitting on the throne, but that player might be like, okay, this is the mayor's house and everyone knows that the mayor is in the pocket of the miners. Mm -hmm. And so all of the laws and things that are passed in this city benefit the miners. As far as the competitive element, I think it really was just trying to, and there are also rules for eliminating that element or you know you don't really have to treat it as competitive it can just be like oh well this is another rule and the person with this number does the last thing Mm -hmm. you know the person the person with a 12 closes the book but i was trying to make sure that like the game appealed to different kinds of player types as well like i still run D for my friend group because we just we've been playing it for years and years sure absolutely Uh, and but I also know my players very well. Like I know that Jordan is going to have his own storyline that he's going to want to pursue. Emily and Aaron are just going to want to tell jokes. And I know that Caleb is the power gamer who has spent like an hour with his player's handbook beforehand (laughs) and has synergy planned out for all of his stats and all of his spells. And he wants to actually like do the power gaming Mm -hmm. like he wants to roll his dice so that even though he knows he's guaranteed to succeed like he wants proof that he did the math right and so even though it like isn't competitive for three quarters of those players i know that that's the one of the things that makes it fun for caleb Mm -hmm. so i'm like okay 
I want to make sure there is something for him too. Mm -hmm. And so by adding the competitive element, like realistically, it's just a way to end the game. Like mm -hmm. it's just a way to kind of have like, uh, like, and here's where we stop. This is the last thing that happens. And so we have narrative resolution, mm -hmm. but even just by using a word like competitive in the text, you know, regardless of how competitive it actually is, mm -hmm. because like it's all just random number generators. Right. You yeah. know, you can't yeah. influence what cards you draw. Someone is able to like feel more invested in like the kind of the mystery of like what cards are going to be drawn next, mm -hmm. you know? Mm. So, you know, and I've watched people in actual plays be like, get really invested and in, like, oh man. Come on, give me that nine. Give me that nine. <laughs> and just like. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Really, that's all you need to include a rule. Yeah. Like, it doesn't need to be core to your philosophy. Just like, if there's a chance of one person saying, like, give me that nine, then like, yeah, sure, why not? Give them the chance. <laughs> Yeah, that little that little gamble addiction, like yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Gambling addiction is very real. If any, you know, we can provide numbers to things. It's very real. Shout out to Jordan, Emily, Aaron, and Caleb. I hope that as you hear this, oh, they're wonderful. Man, yeah, your man Tyler is uh, crushing it and impressing the ever loving shit out of me. What I also really like about, I mean, I know that you can play the game without the competitive element, but what's really interesting about that sort of piece of the puzzle for me is the seat of power and how it's almost a complete recontextualization of the entire city you've been building so far, right? Because so far mm -hmm. you don't know who's in control of the city. So you're spending a number of turns building out, let's even say five players. You've kind of mapped out 25 buildings and have maybe 10 rivals amongst them. And then you hit the seat of power. You're like, all right, who has the most? the mages now this now everything is recontextualized through what does this city look like when it's under the power of the mages right and i think that's really cool because one of the things that helps to 
at least in my opinion, make something feel, make like a town or an NPC or an adventure feel unique is just this final twist that says, okay, we've taken the hero's journey and we've removed this element and now it's a whole new thing, right? And and I just think there's something really cool, especially when we talk about the toolkit side of using this, that Seed of Power says, man, this is the wow factor. This is the X factor that we've been missing since building this. And I think that's really cool. It also, you know, it helps to, you know, make, it helps to create those empty spaces and the turns beforehand because there's always a chance that things will change, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think in a way it is kind of teaching those GM skills, teaching those player skills of like, okay, be creative, but leave some open room for, Mm -hmm. you know, how this might be a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Or even it also kind of prevents someone from, like, domineering a game. Exactly. Because how often do you have that one player who, like, monopolizes the table time and, like, makes all these, like, big sweeping decisions about, like, no, my character is the strongest person in this country because I said it first and like, now this is part of the canon, you know, one, like everyone has their turn Two, like the rules dictate that those turns are always going to be like three sentences long. And f- then if someone were to say like, okay, this building is like the, the elevator guild and there are elevators that take you above ground and underground and my faction runs it and everyone has to use them and anytime they use them, they pay my faction. Like, okay, that's all canon part of the game. But like, by the end of the game, your faction still may not be in power. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they could still have the least amount of influence in the town. Absolutely. So it kind of makes you kind of like nothing is definite. There's always a bit of a softening element of like, okay, like I'm saying this now, but next turn this could, you know, what that actually means could be like, then the magicians could say, but like, yeah, but we built the elevators. And so you kind of, you give all that money to us. Right. Yeah. I think all that is just scrumptious good stuff to, to have both in your arsenal and also to what I also like about this game is that it almost has a tiny bit of this board game feel to it and i love that this is also something you could like bring to a like for someone who's never played a role-playing game before i think this is a also a really good introductory game for people where you could bring it plop it down the table here's the map hey here's a deck of cards in the map and here's how we're going to play this game and all you have to do is just think about what your roles do here, period. I think that's really cool. Because there is like a bit of a, yeah. No, go ahead. There's a bit of like a Candyland aspect to it. Like you have the game board and you're just interacting with the game board. Absolutely. This is is a, a great game. And for, like I said, I think it can be the value, you know, what is value to the consumer at the end of the day, for me, definitely well worth beyond the $5. So, you know, there'll be show note links to where you can pick up uh, Beak, Feather, and Bone. And I don't I don't see why you wouldn't get it. GM, game designer, player, uh, mother who wants to entertain her children at home. Like, I, I, don't, I don't see who doesn't, who can't 
use this game. Just get well, it. Thank you very much. I, I, I really appreciate it. And yeah, like that, that entry point is definitely something that I've tried to be cognizant of. Like my best play testers have been my, my younger brother and his wife because they are farmers who don't play any games digital or otherwise. Mm-hmm. And I was able to run Beak, Feather, and Bone for them over Google Hangouts. And they loved it and were like, can we play this more next week? And I was like, yeah, sure. Oh. It's all kind of stuff like this. Oh, that's so So beautiful. shouts out to Luke and Andrea. Yes, shout out Luke and Andrea. Tyler, before we get into talking about sort of future things, I always like to break up these segments with a little bit of a design trend, lightning round sort of thing. So what that means is I want you to think about either spheres that you are a part of or your own personal thoughts about trends you are seeing, like someone keeps saying the same thing on your Twitter, or a lot of people are saying this on your Twitter, or in the brain trust or something like that, or you've had a thought about a trend you would like to see happen or maybe disappear to some effect you can choose you can do both i've had other guests do both of those but what are some design trends you are seeing and what are some design trends you are thinking about at this current point in time yeah i'm very curious about the kind of like i mean it's it's nothing new since you Mm -hmm. know it's really like I, I'm sure there are older examples of this, but I'm by no means an RPG historian. Sure. But like the systemification of games, you know, like powered by the apocalypse, it's like a kind of a core rule set that then can be like sub-licensed or hacked into other games. Your examples being like the, you know, like D20 games or, you know. Examples like Paragon, mm-hmm. you know, the new Aegon system and things like that. So I think that it is very fascinating, and I definitely see it as a good entry point for designers as kind of like, okay, you have a little bit of an instruction booklet, you know. It's kind of like, you know, you buy the Legos mm-hmm. and you build the set based on the instructions once, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. but then you still have the same pieces, And so after that, you can kind of take it apart and put it back together again. And because there's some kind of restraint in like the pieces that are available to you, you know, it's almost like a safe space to be more creative because you also know that like, well, it worked once, like it looked good once, Mm -hmm. like there is potential for something good in here. It's just how much can I improve on it or how much can I kind of run with it? So that's definitely a trend that you know is existed in like the bigger games Mm -hmm. because in some ways that's how someone continues to profit off of their product right you know like the uh blades in the dark is perfect you know forged in the dark type games like that has become a tentpole of evil hats like business structure Mm -hmm. is like continuing to release new modules new interpretations of this and before that they were doing the same thing with kind of the fate games i'm less interested in like the big tier systems though and i'm more interested in like the micro tier systems Mm -hmm. like something that will and adam for you know brain trust and the games that they've collaborated on is they have made like 
the powered by phantoms rule set mm. like you can make hacks of their game a guide to casting phantoms in the revolution and there's so many other like little indie games that are like hey you know what i came up with was this like these couple cool pieces of tech and people should use them i think that game jam culture is excellent you know, for mm -hmm. creativity. And a lot of people just kind of frame like, okay, here's our jam, make games inspired by this other game. But I would love to see like more kind of full-fledged products that really do like stand on the shoulders of giants and use like what is offered to them to the fullest. Mm -hmm. Like not as like just a quick sketch, watercolor, you know, fun exercise. But I would love for someone to take like the guide to casting phantoms in the revolution structure and then like collaborate with will and adam to put out like a full length game mm -hmm. that you know is more the equivalent to a you know band of blades you know alternative to blades in the dark right does right. that all make sense i feel yes. like i got a little rambly there at the end no no you're uh, su a super good no i i think the same thing so I always, when I talk to sort of my circle of friends about game design stuff and one of the big thing, it, almost everyone I know kind of sticks strong to D&D, &D, but one of the things I think is really disgusting of D&D &D is the DM's Guild situation where they're taking like 20% of your profits to use their intellectual property. I know they have their own open gaming license for like the very simple pieces, but like no one like there are people who have so many cool setting ideas but they have been sucked into using you know the barovia the barovia set the the match the gathering sets that are now out for the settings for the D, D games and they kind of like continuously suck in those dollars while they're not the ones making the product which i think is like just i mean that's partially on people wanting to use the intellectual property but if it's there and they have the idea they're going to use it what I like about the Blades and the Forge in the Dark system models and everything that's sort of like sparking off of that as well. And I think in, you know, sort of in a vein of fate as well is that it just feels a little bit cleaner. It's like, we don't, we just want you to say, Hey, this is the first game. This is the parent game for this game. Other than that, reap all the profits, reap all the benefits, use the, the kits that we have out there. And I just think there's something about that that's sort of boosting up of the, of the game design community, especially for newer people who need that, like you said, safety net of like the original Lego ship they buy. And then they make three little starships out of that. Right. And they don't yeah. have, they're not, they don't have decision fatigue from all the other sets they've bought and slowly they can start to incorporate. So I, I think you totally hit the nail on the head when it comes to this sort of trend of, and I know even our own brain trust member, Spencer Campbell, who I interviewed before, has a creator's kit for Slayers. And creator's kit sort of his biggest Kickstarter project that's come to fruition. I know he's done a great job with Season and a great job with Corvid Court as well. But he, he also said, hey, if you have something for Slayers that you found really cool and even hosted his own Slayers Jam, which was mm -hmm. a big help with that as well. So like the system, systemfication, is that what you said? Systemfication? I might have said that. <laughs> but it's like to si to simplify you know some of this is that like you know one of the big discourses is like well you see so many people being like well everyone plays D&D &D, mm -hmm. and so here's my hack for D&D &D mm -hmm. to create the kind of game that I want to play 
you know, through D&D. Mm -hmm. Like, it's the whole Tasha's Cauldron thing. Yep. It's like, here, yeah. here are ways to play D&D that are not D&D. When really, like, you know, so much of that discourse is like, well, why hack D&D when there's another game that actually, like, the whole point is it's doing the kind of thing that you want? Whether right. it's a style of play or a subject matter or things like that. And I think that as a, a designer, as someone who is, like, you know, interested in hacking other games, you know, like, just because a game has the biggest audience doesn't mean it has the best audience, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Like, because even if something like uh, Guide to Casting Phantoms has a smaller audience, it is an audience of people that are specifically interested in what that game's doing. Mm -hmm. So if you were interested in creating a game that does similar things, you could either take, like, the big popular game and make something that, like, 90% of the people who play that game don't want, mm. or you could make a hack of the small indie game and know that, like, 90% of the people who play that would be interested in more takes on that because that's why they play it, you know? It's mm -hmm. kind of, like, in terms of hacking, like, okay, you can make the Fate module that, you know, who knows if the thousands of people who play Fate it will resonate with, or you can make the Slayers module that the hundreds of people who play Slayers, you know, there's a better chance that someone will really latch onto it and be able to give you the kind of actionable feedback you need as a designer, you know, to actually improve the product. Mm -hmm. Because you need a smaller community if you're going to have any kind of meaningful playtesting. Abs absolutely 100 percent. and what's what's also nice is is this microcosm also is the designers are also kinder in the sense that when i think about like you just said tasha's cauldron and stuff like that i have no doubt in my mind that there were people within wizards of the coast headquarters that are kind of just scanning dm's guild to see like what's the most popular 20 pieces that people are latching on to and how can we I've seen it. I've literally seen it in other books where someone has made like a subclass or something that people love and then they stick it in a book. And it's like, now we get yeah. to benefit from this twice. And I'm like, why do we let this happen? But it's exactly, it's yeah. again, sort of that skewed per perception of what is, you know, right now we have a tandem bicycle of role-playing games are D&D &D 5e. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're an interchangeable word for each other for sort of the surface level of people who know what a role-playing game is. In fact, it's also, for me, as much as I have my own issues with the game, it is still the way that I describe like, yeah, I play role-playing games, you know, like Dungeons and Dragons, because people have seen Stranger Things and I've seen it in Target or whatever and like... They are able to translate that to something. Yeah. Without it's me having a to go. real nightmare for like my Tinder profile. People mm -hmm. are like, well, well, what's your job? It's like, oh, I work in tabletop art. I work in game design. And mm -hmm. they're like, what kind of games? It's like, well, like tabletop RPGs. And it's like always the line that I use when they're like, oh, like this or that or like Stranger Things. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like Dungeons sure. and Dragons, but less fighting and more feelings. Yeah, it just is kind of the the elevator pitch that I've come up with it. But it is, yeah, it is weird, like the D and Dification of the hobby. Mm -hmm. You know, it is very much like like 
you know, Kleenex is a brand. It's, mm-hmm. it's not a product, but exactly. everyone calls tissues Kleenexes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Is there any other design trends that are sort of running in your mind at this moment? I think that's the big one. And unless you wanted me to like speak on my personal design trends. Sure. Yeah. I absolutely. think that I, I think the kind of work that I'm doing and kind of the tech that I'm working on in my future games um, is less a like I'm seeing this in the scene, so I'm leaning on it. Mm-hmm. And more of a this isn't what I'm seeing other people doing. And so I'd like to try and like advocate for this some and, you know, mm-hmm. also f- kind of make a unique corner for myself as someone who's doing this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Great. What What is that? What is that thing? Yeah. So I... I am very, and it's the same with Beak, Feather, and Bone. I'm very into kind of spreading creativity throughout all players. And it also, to harken back to an earlier thing we talked about, you know, even in games where I think there are, like, I am not, like, hardcore anti-GM. You know, I think there are some games where GM is super valuable Mm -hmm. um, and necessary. I just want to make sure it's also fun for GMs. And so what I'm trying to work into my games is a democratization of creativity with, you know, like still opportunities for surprise, Mm -hmm. still opportunities for improv, still opportunities for reaction, Mm -hmm. you know, because... Like, the thing that makes it different from just, like, an exquisite corpse, you know, run-on story or a game of telephone Mm -hmm. is, like, yes, everyone having agency to be creative, but also, like, those seat of power moments where, like, things could change depending on how someone else interprets it or reacts to it. So a lot of what I've been working on for some upcoming games is something that I'm calling a fishbowl mechanic. Have you ever played the party game where like you have a bowl or a hat? My family plays it a lot during holidays where like everybody writes down like a word or a phrase or a celebrity and like folds the piece of paper, puts it in a hat. And then maybe you have like two teams or something Mm -hmm. and someone gets up and they have, you know, a minute to pull cards out And, like, first round, they can say anything but the word that's on the card. Mm, Like, mm. second round, they can do charades. Or second round, they can say one word. Third round, they can do, like, just charades. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I'm taking from those is this idea of having, like, a community pool of everyone being able to put in, you know, different elements of creativity. Kind of... Sometimes with other players' knowledge, sometimes without other players' knowledge. Mm-hmm. So the chief example of what I mean is the superpower uh, game that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. I really love... I'm a sucker for single unique power properties. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's the X-Men, where it's like, all right, everybody has the one like cool mutant <laughs> power. Or it's One Piece, where it's like, all right, everyone has the one cool devil fruit power. Shout out to One or, Piece like hunter hunter like Mm -hmm. all of these different properties my hero academia it's a lot of anime yeah but it's like the trope is that like all right everyone has one unique power Mm -hmm. and sometimes like 
and the one piece is the prime example of this. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes mm-hmm. someone ate like the lava lava fruit and they have cool lava powers. <laughs> and like sometimes someone ate the the mochi mochi fruit and it's literally like okay, so mochi is like this rice dessert. Yeah. <laughs> How do we make like a cool superhero who has all like rice dessert powers? Yeah. But I think that that creativity is like super fun. So this single unique power game that I'm working on has a fishbowl mechanic where at the start of the game, everybody just writes down like three words on pieces of paper, mm. puts them into a hat, shuffles them around. And then part of the game is drawing a card out. And like, that's the basis for your superpower. So it's an opportunity for someone to flex those creativity muscles of being like, you know, it would be really cool, like a cactus power. I'm going to write cactus. And, you know, our game is going to have someone with a cactus power. But it also gives an opportunity for trolling. Yeah. Like someone uh, yeah. could just write. Yeah. Someone could just write toilet. <laughs> yeah. And like, OK, my person has the toilet power. And then the creativity comes from like, OK, someone's got a toilet power. Mm-hmm. how do i like how can i spin that how can i be creative with like this inspiration that someone's given me like how can i make like a still deep character because mm-hmm. like one piece spoilers the guy with the mochi mochi power is one of the best guys in the yeah. entire show yeah yeah <laughs> he's like he's fantastic so part of this game is it starts with the fishbowl mechanic and then based on some very simple dice rolls basically the card with the character that you're working on each turn, you add like one additional facet to that character Mm -hmm. and then you pass it clockwise or counterclockwise, or there's a small chance that you might get a role that says like draw a new character. And so your character's done. No one's allowed to like define anything else for him, whatever like items were written on it. You know, that is the extent of the canon we have on this character. And if we were to, encounter him in the game everything else is up for grabs so kind of the same way that beak feather and bone is this game where it's like all right the player agency is creating this map together and the um the surprise and like the shift is you know the lightly competitive elements this is a game where like all right the game is gamifying the gm experience of creating npcs Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but the twist on it is one not having control over what kind of power is the basis for your character. And two, depending on how cards get passed around the table, everyone having a chance to make that exquisite corpse of a character where, you know, on turn three, maybe it's your turn to decide like, you know, who the toilet man's best friend is. (laughs) It's a sewer rat on first go. Wow. That, and then the other, yeah, the other piece of tech that I have for it is, these cards are going to be passed around the table, you know, a variable number of times. There might be a card that, like, doesn't get a roll that says you retire it for a while. Mm. So it might get, like, nine sentences of extra information on this character. But there might be one that only gets two sentences of information before they're retired and put in the middle. At the end of the game, kind of the the pivot moment is going to be you're going to look at those cards and depending on how many sentences are on them, that gives it a number. So you're going to have a nine and a two. Mm -hmm. And that's always going to be two different factions. 
So like how in these superhero shows you have the X-Men and you have the Brotherhood of Mutants, Mm -hmm. you know, you're always going to have two sides. It's not necessarily going to be the good side or the bad side, but there's always going to be two sides. Mm -hmm. And who knows if Toilet Man is the hero of the show or the villain? Yeah. We just know that like (laughs) he's, you know, he's on the Brotherhood of Mutants side. That's what. And that's another shift. Like you could spend an entire game. Like making like, all right, Cactus Man is a paragon of truth. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the game, if he has an odd number of sentences, then like, sorry, he's on the bad guy side. (laughs) So how do we reinterpret the fact that like he never tells a lie? He's the George Washington of cactuses (laughs) cut down a cherry cactus, but he's a bad guy. What? an awesome way to create again both a really interesting game but also another toolkit item to delineate how to create npcs but also factions at the same time and what's nice about that is that sometimes i think at least for me when i create i fall into this pit pit trap a lot is that when i create a faction for something I think of the faction like word or hat first and then every NPC that's in there also kind of shares that hat. But with yours, it creates this very complex organization, right? Like there are so many different interesting personalities that will live in there, but then they can all wear the same uniform. Or yeah, whatever, the unifying right? factor is the last thing you decide. Exactly, you know? exactly. So you could go through an entire thing creating two polar opposite characters and then you know, the luck of the die says at the end, like, well, they're actually like coworkers. Yeah. Wow. That's, and I love the sort of codifying the fishbowl mechanic because when I talked to Adam Bell about his games, about his game, No Stone Unturned, he also does a very like beginning of the game sort of fishbowl thing where everyone writes down some notes about different areas uh, around the settlement that they're in. And I love now that, listeners out there have something to codify that sort of experience to the sort of like dip in, draw the prompt, call like this is now what you're reacting to, right? And I love that you always think about sort of that reaction. Instead of creating a game that's just like linear, uh, linear sort of, well, then this happens, and then this happens, and this happens. Something to shake the bag is always under consideration for the next move at some point. And I think I think that's a really like, golden star thing for listeners to keep intact is that part of the thing that makes or at least for both me and tyler the thing that makes role-playing games for us is sort of that reactionary moment where something twists and now you have to decide the story has now derailed from what you thought it was going to be but that's where conflict and interesting moments happen that allow you to continue that line without being bored I think that if you keep yeah. following just that line, you get to a point where like it peters or stutters. It's like sort of the endless campaign syndrome where you don't really have a mm-hmm. conflict. You're just doing like Gonzo adventures week to week and that's fine, but that can only last. I guess that depends on the person. That's not necessarily fair to make a sweeping statement like that. Yes. I'm the guy that makes sweeping statements in his game. When, when I want everyone to think I'm the strongest person in the world. Yeah. You're, but, hey, we've said it here. You're the Jimmy <laughs> Fallon of RPGs. Yeah. You make sweeping <laughs> statements, reducing very complex issues into I'm, binary right and wrong statements. I'm so mad because the brain trust is going to bully me after they hear this episode. <laughs> now my name's going to shift to Jimmy Fallon. Please don't do it. I still want to be a part of the community. Don't butt me out. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, I'm chill, but it's yeah. your fault for tussling Gary Gygax's hair back in the day. You and normalized him. Wow. What do you have any thoughts of when you're going to start sort of putting s- stuff out for feelers? Like, hey, I've got I've got this sort of single unique power game. I'm I'm playing with. Also, quick quick sidestep. I'm also a big like anime king person so like if we ever want to chat about that i'm hard on like jujutsu kaisen right now i caught up on the manga oh i am caught up yeah. on the manga yeah of yeah jujutsu kaisen as well it's so good i'm like I they're just not caught gonna... up to all of the jojo's bizarre adventure anime yes yes um well it's really like it it started in a similar place to my beak feather feather and bone prep mm-hmm. where it's like okay you know, what does a good RPG book look like? Mm. Oh, it's me writing a world Bible for this city, mm. realizing that, like, that's not the thing that I find enjoyable and pivoting. At first, I was like, I want to write, like, a shonen RPG. Like, I want to write something that recreates these kind of experiences. Like, I want to recreate the episodic type storytelling. I want to recreate this, that, and the other. And, like, I was working on all of these resolution mechanics, and, like, I just, at a certain point, I lost the forest for the trees. Mm -hmm. And I realized that, like, oh, I don't want to create, like, the Ur system for how to run an anime RPG. Like, I am mm-hmm. not looking to compete with, like, Big Eyes, Small Mouth, which is sure. still, like, the dumbest name for an RPG. <laughs> um, and also, especially, like, as like as a white man, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, how much is it my place to, like, create, you know, the... Like, to gamify a piece of like largely asian culture yeah so pulling back is like what do i want to do oh really what i'm more interested in is this trend in eastern and western media of the single unique power shows Mm -hmm. and really all i want to do is like create excuses to make like weird superpowers because that's something that i enjoy as a gm You know, Mm -hmm. even if I'm sometimes just pulling it out of my ass of like, okay, you meet this guy and he's a cactus man, you know, (laughs) like I want to give players the opportunity too of being like, well, someone saw a lamp in the room. And so they wrote the word lamp. What's this lamp superpower like? Because like, that's the quintessential GM experience. It's looking around a room and seeing like, all right, what can inspire the what's behind this door? Yeah. House. (laughs) Yes, the mayor's name is Birdhouse. <laughs> First name Bird, last name House. So mm. to to answer your earlier question, though, like, this is the first time I've really talked to anyone about it. So you're getting mm-hmm. a scoop. This is Woo! me putting out the feelers. Ground um, floor. Ground floor alert. <laughs> uh, and the other thing is that I am gearing up for my next big Kickstarter in 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, in part to pay for the taxes of my last Kickstarter mm-hmm. because I didn't expect for it to do as well as it did. And mm-hmm. I wasn't in the right position to like budget appropriately, especially mm-hmm. with the pandemic hitting. Right, I was like, right. I wasn't saving money. I was just right. lucky to be paying my bills. So with 2021, I'm not going to be doing Zine Quest, knock on wood, unless someone like peer pressures me into it. I might collaborate with someone, but I'm not planning on running anything. Mm-hmm. I am planning on running a campaign before tax deadlines mm-hmm. so that I Makes can sense. raise enough money to pay taxes. But I'm my goal is to run a Kickstarter that is more of a subscription model for these little games. Mm-hmm. I have 
about a dozen of these micro games, mm-hmm. very similar to my single unique power game that are somewhere between a game and a tool and mm-hmm. still figuring out the exact number that I'm going to offer. But the structure of the Kickstarter will be like two price points, one for a digital subscription, one for a digital subscription plus a box set at the end. Mm. And the idea being that like, all right, for $25, you'll get six games, you know, one game delivered digitally each month. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of six months, if you pay the premium price, you'll also get sent a box that has those six games in print. And with the idea being that I will be creating a revenue stream for myself of like, all right, what is the point of the Kickstarter? It's to raise a lump amount of cash all at one time. You know, mm-hmm. similar to the way that theaters sell subscriptions. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you're basically generating the operating money for the rest of the year. And Absolutely. then as I release these small games one by one, hopefully more people then discover the project. They go to a backer kit to pre-order it. And then, you know, I'm not going to be selling any of the physical games until after the boxes are delivered. But then once the boxes are delivered, I have, you know, these six games that I can also sell piecemeal. You know, I don't need to bundle them in like a $50 box. I can just sell them for 10 bucks each, you know, with the idea being that, like, how do I seize on the success of my last Kickstarter? And how do I stay true to myself as a designer, as someone who likes simple games, as someone Mm -hmm. who likes small games, but also knowing that, like, all right, if I want to make this my full-time job, I need to make more money than a zine quest. So the solution is I don't want to write the competitor to D&D. I don't want to write the game that is, you know, here's my world Bible, and because it's 200 pages, I'm going to charge you $60 for it. Mm-hmm. I would rather say, like, hey, you know me. I'm good at these little games. Mm-hmm. You can have six for $60. Because yeah. then I actually have a value proposition for like, well, for Beak, Feather, and Bone, there were two tiers, $5 for digital, $10 for physical. You know, how do mm-hmm. I justify having two tiers that are 25 for digital and 50 for physical? Well, mm-hmm. it's by offering more. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. But that's that's the plan. And it, you know, it really is. It has been like an ongoing process of being like, you know, a lot of the conversation that we've had here today of identifying trends, identifying like what the market is interested in, but also, you know, identifying my own talents and my own passions and making something that is going to like give back to me as a designer and just like the life and joy that it brings me rather than just like, you know, losing my soul, making something that I think that other people want. Right. Which is always the slippery slope for any artistic endeavor, for sure. You know, I'm sure that products uh, and tools also feel this in some way, but, you know, you want to, you at some point have the thought that like, I would like to make as much money as possible from this. And sometimes that thought leads you to like, what does everyone else want? And what can I supply them? But I think there really is this balancing act between holding true to your tenets of design or artistic creation versus 
what people want to pay or how long it's going to take to find the people that want to pay for that sort of thing. I think there's always a person out there who will pick up what you're putting down, but how many of those people can certainly be differing depending on the spheres or bubbles that you access. And to touch on the sort of subscription model thing that you're thinking of, I know that Spencer's also very much like on this idea of the season pass and had a very similar thought to you uh, for his light game that he's creating, which is his heartbreaker to destiny. He is going to release modules every quarter, like four, four modules a quarter, something like that. And at the end of the year, that's going to come into a culmination of a print book that anyone who's like bought all three season passes or all four season passes, excuse me, will be able to get that book at, in a physical form at the end of the year. And then people can still buy piecemeal for the little bits, you know, back end sort of stuff. And he's trying to figure out how to do that over on itch or through Patreon or whatever, but it'd be, I think it'd be a nice connection for the two of you to kind of talk about that, that business structure. Yeah. And I mean, the biggest thing is just like, Part of why my idea for the model, and I imagine Spencer's is the same, is like having a print product only at the end of the process Mm -hmm. is because shipping really is like the hidden demon of this entire endeavor. Like, because Mm -hmm. no one wants to pay for shipping six times, you know, it would be unrealistic to ask them for it and it would be really hard to budget for it, especially Mm -hmm. as shipping costs, you know, rise and fall with like, the you know the lightest of breezes you know by doing something where like okay at the end of the process we backer kit you for the exact shipping cost you know it makes that kind of subscription model that is really just a digital subscription Mm -hmm. with a premium print tier so much more attainable yeah absolutely all good stuff Uh, everyone you should have your notebooks out I don't ever say it at the beginning of the show, but you should be taking notes on everything this yeah. man is saying. You should be <laughs> listening to this at 0.5 speed, <laughs> transcribing every word. <laughs> no, I, I am one of those monsters that listens to all podcasts at three times speed. Yeah, uh, same. Because same. I listen to entirely too many podcasts. Mm-hmm. But also, like, I started doing that because of actual play podcasts, mm-hmm. because there are so many, like, us and ums and like thinking and things. I was like, mm-hmm. all right, this is much more efficient if I listen to it at three times speed. Yep. But then I found myself like working up a sweat GMing <laughs> at the table because I was like running everything so fast. I was like, why am I doing this? Oh, it's because all the GMs I listen to, I listen to at three times speed. Like this is not a realistic expectation to have for myself. Yeah. And then you get in the building and then I need you to roll to take damage. <laughs> Exactly. It would be like someone would say, like, I open the door and and like, I would not give myself a chance to think. I would just be like, cool, behind the door, you see a slug. It is very big. (laughs) It's your best friend. That's all the room has. Yeah, I would just like talk and talk and talk and just be like, what? What am I doing? last little bit here is sort of TLDR advice section. So I have a little table here that I'm going to roll on. Mm. 
for. With whatever knowledge you have at your disposal, would you give the listeners a little tip about marketing when it comes to the game design sphere? Just whatever you think that sort of, whatever comes to mind on the prompt of marketing. Yeah, uh, I think marketing is something that I have always struggled with, specifically with my game stuff, because, you know, so much of my day job running a publishing company was like, all right, I get on the Plays and Verse Twitter and I promote our next book. You know, it was very much like a work type thing for me. And before, like, I really embraced, you know, my game design as part of my overall, like, income and livelihood, you know. I wouldn't really talk about my projects that much, uh, in part because of like the lack of confidence stuff I talked about before, and in part because like I just you know it felt like work. But really, and I wouldn't have thought of it as marketing at the time, but I think that it serves kind of the same purpose. I think part of why Beak Feather and Bone did so well is because I may not have been like marketing my own projects, but I was interacting with the community and I was championing other people's projects you know even definitely like when i had some skin in the game for like projects i edited i would be really proactive in making sure that you know folks knew about those and like helping to market those projects but also just like you know retweeting brain trust projects you Mm -hmm. know making friends and like even when i had nothing to gain supporting other people in the scene and like calling out cool work when i saw it that when I launched my project, you know, so many people were willing to back day one because they were just, like, excited to help support me. And so when I think about, like, the kind of marketing advice I can give, it is much less like, oh, budget this much for Mm -hmm. ads. It really is, like, you know, especially in the indie space, you're selling the game, but you're also selling yourself mm-hmm. to a degree. And that's always going to feel kind of icky because it doesn't, you know, it's not, it's not fun to like commoditize yourself. And really the only way that you can get around that is make it so you don't have to sell yourself. And the way that you don't have to sell yourself is just if everybody knows who you are already, mm-hmm. you know, like you don't necessarily need to pitch yourself if you walk the walk in your everyday life. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you're kind of already like showing people the kind of game designer that you are through like your words and deeds. So as people think about like, all right, what's the best marketing for my game? I think the best marketing for your game is simply having people know who you are well enough that when it's like, all right, hey, there's a new Tyler Crumb Ryan game. Like people are like, you know, they like Tyler Crumrine. And yeah, it really is. It's, you know, I don't think be sleazy about it, but just like be a person, you mm-hmm. know, like this uh, is too small of a scene, like engage with it mm-hmm. and to not like get excited about other people. And the more you signal boost other people's work, the more they're going to return the favor when, you know, there's something that you have and they're not going to do it out, out of obligation they're going to do it because they like genuinely want to support you mm-hmm. yeah i listen to this everything you're saying is is beautiful there's this podcast i listen to called the creative pep talk by andy j pizza he always harps on how how can you and i don't mean when i say the word value i don't mean it like a marketer like what's the what's the value of of our toothpaste here today but like 
really giving value to your community and supporting and lifting up other people. And those things will pay huge dividends to you when the time comes to sort of call on that swell. And that doesn't mean like, you know, boost up people and then say, Hey, can you boost my game since I've been boosting you? Like, don't do that. Do, do yeah, not, not do that version process of, that. of calling in favors. Yeah. Yeah. It's a process of being a part of a community. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. like a community, it, like helps each other because they care about each other. Mm-hmm. Not because like they're worried that, you know, the landlord will raise their rent. <laughs> yeah. If they don't. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, you know, Jim, Jim always comes and helps us to put up the, the barns every day. And it looks like he's, he's kind of struggling over in the cornfield. You know, let's take a break from the barns today and kind of help him, help him harvest. You know, it's that sort of like small town, everyone knows who you are and can see like when you're finally able to like really fall in love with something and people will want to support you. There's, and I've, I've seen it all over the place, especially within the brain trust. These last three episodes have also had like massive brain trust energy. And if no one's catching up oh, yeah. yet, yeah, I mean, it's because we're a, f- <laughs> a force to be reckoned with. Yeah. Yeah. No one's ready for what's about to come out of this discord for sure. <laughs> yeah. Tyler, I want to thank you for everything you've, for your time, for everything you've provided for the listeners and for myself today, where can people find you if they want to find out more about you or if they want to just touch base with you about an idea you said here today, by the way, all these links that he is about to say will be in the show notes. Yeah. So a couple places, best place to get a hold of me is probably on Twitter. My handle is at a cool guy, uh, cool guy i mostly i might be changing this this handle soon if i like you know revamp my twitter into like a games company type thing but mostly i just wanted to like write into podcasts and them have to say like a cool guy on twitter uh, <laughs> ask this question but you can find me on there if you search tyler crumrine crumrine.info is my personal website that really needs updated too. Uh, best place to go is really my itch. It's mm-hmm. just well, let me find out what it is. It, I know it's my name, Tyler Dash Crumrine, C R U M R I N E dot itch dot io. That's going to show you all of my like currently available tabletop projects, uh, including Tail Scale and Bone, mm-hmm. which is the first official expansion of Beak Feather and Bone. Recontextualizes it as all mermaids because there's really no reason that the map couldn't be underwater (laughs) and all of the funds that i raised through that get donated to prison abolition here in pittsburgh the allegheny county jail has just like really abysmal numbers on patient depression and suicide and about 80 percent of their inmates haven't even been they just can't afford bail so You know, if this all sounds interesting for you, and if you want a template for like ways that you could hack and expand Beak Feather and Bone in a way that kind of builds on the rules rather than like, you know, plagiarizing them, that's a great example. It'll cost one buck and it'll kind of show you the kind of thing that I'm going to encourage people to make whenever I throw an eventual like BFB jam. Because it is just going to be one of those things is like, hey, do whatever the hell you want as long as you don't lift the core rules wholesale. So that someone mm-hmm. still like just needs to at least f- be familiar with the original game to use it. That that is all great stuff, and you know, I as a quick quick aside, living in Pittsburgh, 
fun fact for everyone at the home I used at home I used to live in Pittsburgh and our guest here is also stationed up there in Pennsylvania in Millvale right is that right did I mess that up Millville Millvale yeah Millvale small connection with him represent yes there it is represent but uh, I lived right next door our dorm for the Arts Institute was right next to the jail over on First Street exactly where you're talking about Mm -hmm. yeah so Help support a great cause by picking up tail scale and bone, everyone. Tyler, it was an absolute pleasure having you here today. For everyone at home, I hope you learned a lot. I also hope you good... learned a lot. Yes, yes. I, I uh, also hope you have a good day. Bye, everyone. Say bye to the people, Tyler. Goodbye. <laughs> Do good at everything, I guess. <laughs> All right, that's a wrap. Thank you for taking the time to sit down and hang out with Tyler and I. We really appreciate it. You can find links and resources down below in the show notes, such as getting in touch with Tyler or other episodes with similar topics. If you want to be a part of the conversation, please come and join the community Discord server. Also, make sure to subscribe to the Draw Your Dice Patreon, where you can get access to early releases of episodes from as soon as we interview. Thanks again for stopping by, and as always, I will catch you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.